You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 7, I would like to actually start out by reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, where it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the reason that I wanted to read that is because one of the things that's so fascinating to me about studying the Gospels and reading of the life of Christ is to remember that I'm learning about God. I'm learning about the priorities of God, the the heart of God, the vision of God, the passion of God, the love of God for this world. And in this text that's in front of us today, and really in all of the stories of the life of Christ, we're seeing glimpses into the very nature of uh, God himself. And In this first story, as we see this centurion place his faith beautifully in Jesus, we see that God responds to humble, faith-filled prayer and requests. And of course, we know that from the Bible, but the encouragement for us is to then live in that kind of humble, faith-filled prayer uh, kind of life. So in verse one, moving into our text here in Luke chapter seven, it says, after he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people. So we just saw that he taught his sermon on the plain is what some people uh, call it. The life of discipleship. He laid it out for the people. He entered Capernaum. Now, verse two, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, this is fascinating because, of course, there in Capernaum, uh, which had become sort of Jesus's hometown and new ministry epicenter, uh, you have this centurion who has a request. Now, a centurion would have been in charge of a detachment of non-Jewish Roman troops. He would have been an employee at this time of the wicked Herod Antipas. Uh, He was ultimately working for and employed by Rome and, you know, would not by position have been incredibly popular amongst the Jewish community. But this man was, and as we'll see in a moment, and he comes to Jesus through servants, the elders of the Jews, and asks if Jesus would heal uh, his servant who is sick. Uh, So much so, Luke says that he was at the point of death. And when they came to Jesus, verse four, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, it's interesting here. Obviously, this man is a good man, not just a brutal tyrant of a centurion. 
he cares for his servant, which is enlightening or insightful. Uh, but beyond that, the Jewish leaders, they actually come to him and say, look, we aren't saying this because we've been forced to. Uh, we really do think that he is worthy of having you heal his servant. And here's why. He loves Israel and he built us the synagogue that's in our town. In every town, you know, they would seek to have a synagogue that they could gather and study the scripture and, you know, worship the Lord in one sense. So very different from the temple. But he said, they say he built ours. He basically funded it. He paid for it. And so Jesus, verse 6, upon hearing all of this, this request for the healing of the servant from the elders on behalf of the Roman centurion, Jesus went with them. And so you just see the responsiveness of the Lord. And, you know, I think on one hand, it probably would speak to us concerning the heart and desire of God to respond to the uh, prayers of his people. He's ready and willing and listening and responds to the cry of man. Now, when he was not far from the house, verse 6, the centurion sent friends. He's already sent now Jewish elders. Now he sends friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, this is fascinating for a couple of reasons. First of all, it is fascinating that Jesus was preparing himself to go into the home of this Roman centurion. It would have been an epic moment for a Jewish rabbi to go into a Roman centurion's home. You might remember in the book of Acts, Peter received all the confirmation that he needed from the Holy Spirit that he was supposed to go to Caesarea and enter into the home of another Roman centurion named Cornelius. And that was a very new thing for Peter. He said in Acts 10 verse 28, he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, perhaps Peter was watching Jesus at this moment, noticing, well, Jesus is willing to actually go inside as a Jewish rabbi inside the home of a Gentile centurion. But before Jesus had a chance to actually enter into the home, the centurion sent servants and his message is interesting. He said to the Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now, that's fascinating because the Jewish leadership, obviously, had presented the man as worthy. They said, he loves our nation. He built us a synagogue. He is worthy to have you heal him. And I think this is beautiful because we're seeing here a man who was willing to humble himself before the Lord. He didn't buy into perhaps the thoughts of the people. Uh, he didn't receive the praise of man. He wasn't asking from a position of uh, merit uh, or pride. This was humility. He humbly 
came uh, before the Lord. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that it removes all boasting from us. There is literally nothing that we can do in obedience or in desire to bring honor and glory to the Lord, there's literally nothing that we could do that would ever repay the Lord for what he has done to us. No, for all of our lives, we are simply responding to the beautiful grace of Christ in our lives. The cross of Jesus crushes our ability to boast, not that we really ever could, but it should put our pride in its proper place and lower our hearts before the Lord. Words and phrases, I mean, the way that this man prayed, words and phrases like, I deserve, and he should, or how could he, or I'm worthy, the closer you get to the Lord, the more that these phrases seem to evaporate uh, from your vocabulary. But his real thing was, Jesus, you're authoritative. I'm in authority as a centurion. I'm under authority and I'm in authority. I tell servants to go and they go and to come and they come. And it's obvious that you are in authority as well. So simply from where you are right now, speak the word and my servant will be healed. Say the word. What beautiful faith. What beautiful faith that there is this all power, this strength, this ability that God has. And to understand the authority of Christ, the authority of the Lord. This man understood it. And I just marvel at this. And as I read it, as I teach it, every time I set my mind upon it, I, I ask the Lord, Lord, would you open up my heart? I'm sorry that my faith is so small, that my prayers are so little, and that I believe you for so few things in my life. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had seen or when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, Jesus here marvels. Only twice in the Gospels does it tell us that Jesus marvels at something. In Mark chapter 6, when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, he marveled at their unbelief, their lack of faith. Knowing what they knew, they should have been so faith-filled. But here he marvels at the faith of this Roman centurion, uh, this man who unlike Israel, had not been exposed, didn't have this great history. He says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so here you have Jesus marveling at the quality of faith in this centurion. And this is beautiful that this man so wonderfully believed in the Lord. Now, when I look into my own life and when I look into my own heart, I see a word of hope and a word of caution. One word of hope here is that Jesus obviously is blown away by this man's faith because of where he came from. And if you think about perhaps maybe where you came from, your background, how little maybe you knew before you came to Christ, it's hopeful to, to look and say, okay, there seems to be a, a willingness within the heart of God to consider the setting to consider the atmosphere of my heart and my faith and my history uh, with him. And so there's some hope. 
But also for me, it's a word of caution. I've lived inside the church for many years in my life. And so knowing what I know, having been exposed to what I've been exposed to, there should be, I think, a deeper, bolder, stronger faith than I've ever had in my life. And so a beautiful thing to consider and the, to desire to have the kind of faith that this man had and his servant was healed. Now, Luke often tells stories in couples. You see the story of Elizabeth and Mary. Uh, you see the story of John and Jesus. You see the story of uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. And here we have a second story that connects with the centurion's servant being healed, another story of faith. It says, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So he goes to this town about 25 miles away uh, from Capernaum, and he's going to uh, with a great crowd of people who have gathered together. And here Jesus is actually going to raise a young man uh, back to life. There are three people that Jesus brings back from the dead in the Gospels. One of them is Jairus's daughter, 12 years of age, not yet buried, still there in her room, lying dead on her bed. The second one is here. We have a widow's son who is on his way to be buried in the funeral procession. And then the third is Lazarus, who is already buried in the tomb uh, for a few days. And so Jesus here is going to raise this uh, young man from uh, the dead. This whole burial happened usually within 24 hours of the death. And so this is a powerful miracle. So this great crowd follows Jesus. And as he drew, verse 12, near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so these two crowds collide. Now, obviously, the centurion who just received a healing for his servant and this widow who will receive a resuscitation for her only son, uh, these two people are held in contrast from one another. Uh, the centurion was interceding for his servant uh, this woman will see her son much closer than a servant impacted by the Lord. The centurion was interceding. This woman was simply weeping. The centurion would express faith in the Lord. This woman was only grieving. Uh, the centurion was a powerful man. This woman is a helpless woman. She's a widow in that culture. Her only son is dead. So the men in her life are gone. Uh, he was a man and she a woman, uh, a Gentile centurion and a Jewish woman. Others vouched for him and others wept with her. Jesus never saw the servant that uh, he healed for the centurion, but Jesus very much saw the dead son. And they discovered the servant to be well, but he'll present the son to his mother. So great contrasts between uh, the two. And she's in pain. She's a widow. Her only son is dead. She's weeping very real tears. And when the Lord saw her, verse 13, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched 
the coffin and the bearers stood still and he said young man i say to you arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and gave him to his mother so what you have here is this beautiful healing from the lord to this young man i mean just imagine the scene you know you've got this funeral procession these two crowds coming together uh, two individuals that are at the center of each crowd. One, this weeping mother, and the other, Jesus, with his crowd. He sees the whole scene, and he has compassion, uh, not on the young man, but he has compassion on the boy. And he says to her, he says, do not weep. You know, I think it's important for us to see the attitude and the heart of God as we're learning about Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, because I think so often people say things about God that are just radically untrue, that God is unmoved by pain. And if God is real, then why is there so much evil and suffering? And, you know, philosophers and theologians have been answering these questions much better than I uh, ever will or could for many years. But what you see here is that God really is moved by pain. He sees it. He has compassion. There is a hurt within the heart of Christ for this scene. Now, the thing is that God looks upon this kind of thing cosmically or universally, and he then says, what can I do? I'll send my son. I'll send my son to make a way of forgiveness, to make a way for them to be resurrected out of this condition eternally for all who place their faith and trust in my son. So the Lord God is moved by compassion. Jesus moved by compassion here in this moment. Jesus then comes and he touches the buyer or the coffin and the bearers stand still. And he says to the young man, he says, I say to you, arise. This is Jesus speaking to a corpse. He's speaking to someone who is dead. But I find that the Lord is so faithful at speaking to those who are dead, that God speaks to the dead as if they are alive or being called to life. Yeah, Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 14, he said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Have you ever read something in the scripture that is a command to you, to your heart? And you know full well that within your own heart, there is no ability. You're not going to be able to obey the thing that is set in front of you. However, you know that through fellowship with Christ, victory could be won and the deadness that's inside of you could be called out and you could come alive and live for the Lord. And I think that God often speaks to the dead as if they live. God believes so much more in his power and his ability in our lives than we do. Now, at that point, as this young man arises, fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countries. So they were right. Jesus is a great prophet. He is the prophet that was prophesied 
to uh, of to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, but really, they nailed it when they said God has visited his people. There was God in the flesh visiting and dwelling amongst his uh, people. Elijah and Elisha had raised sons back to life and they were considered great prophets. And so that's why the people said this uh, about Jesus. Just an incredible miracle at this moment. Now, in this next section, uh, John the Baptist comes back onto the scene. It says in verse 18 that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And we would assume, given the way that Luke has laid it out, that uh, specifically these previous miracles, the raising of this young man from the dead, especially, uh, and the healing of the centurion's servant were reported to John, who was at this time already imprisoned by Herod Antipas. Uh, That's what Matthew 11 verse uh, 2 tells us. So they travel the distance, perhaps even 100 miles away from Capernaum, to Herod's fortress palace east of the Dead Sea, and they report these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them, these two servants or disciples, to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men who uh, had come to him, uh, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the question that we would ask is, what kind of question is this from John? What does he mean uh, to ask? Uh, some people think that John is simply at this point, as he's there in jail, being persecuted, that he is simply asking the question from a discouraged and wavering position. Uh, however, it doesn't seem to me that John is doubting at all whether the Christ will come but just that he's willing to look for another if Jesus isn't the Christ that was promised. And John doesn't seem at all to be a wavering person. Jesus will actually affirm that in a moment, uh, that he's bold, that he's strong. It seems that he went boldly to his death proclaiming righteousness. He was in jail, after all, for rebuking the incestual or incestuous, adulterous relationship between Herod and Herodias. But I think that there was something about this report from his disciples that produced this line of questioning from John. I think he was waiting for something different than what Jesus was doing. He hears that Jesus is going around healing people. He's going around raising the dead. But I think John was waiting for instead the glory of the Lord and a day of great judgment. Uh, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 tells us that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And I think John fulfilling some of those Elijah prophecies was waiting for the great and awesome day of the Lord, which was which is a day of wrath and a, and a day of judgment. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, I'll send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. That's clearly about John. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, who can endure the day of his coming, verse 2, who can stand when he appears. He's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And, And on and on, there's this description of not only judgment nationally and worldwide, but specifically 
the purification of Israel and a spiritual revival. And as the son of a Levite priest, I think that John was desiring personally to see those things that had been prophesied of in uh, the Old Testament. And so I think perhaps he was asking more something like, where is the political reformation? You're going around healing a centurion's servant. Where's the apocalyptic vengeance and signs that would come upon the enemies of God? And where's the spiritual renewal of the nation? These are things that the day of the Lord uh, had spoken of. Political reformation for Israel, vengeance upon the enemies of God, spiritual renewal. And Jesus was doing really neat things, but John, I think, wondered, what does that have to do with the day of the Lord? Now, in that hour, verse 21, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So, in the midst of all this, Jesus gets this question from John's disciples, and what does he do? He goes out and he just keeps on trucking healing uh, diseases and plagues and evil spirit giving sight to the blind he just keeps working which i just love because it tells me that when there are uh, well when the critics come sometimes one of the best things to do is to just keep on doing what the lord has asked you to do but jesus said then in verse 22 after a period of healing he said go and tell john what you have seen and heard the blind receive their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, when he tells them this, notice the categories. You've got, you know, some really neat things. The blind see, lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear. Then you have this whole other category kind of escalating. The dead are raised up. But the last thing on Jesus' lips, I think, is what he considers the most magnificent. The poor, he said, have the good news preached to them. I think partly he's announcing to John, John, this is what it's all about. And so he says to John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, the message of Jesus is the method of of Jesus. And there's a great blessing when we just simply embrace the method that Jesus chooses to use. So often we struggle with the way that God does things. We struggle with why he does things the way he does them. But rather than try to put ourselves on the throne of God, rather than suffer from the I, if I was God syndrome, we're called to embrace his method, the method of the gospel. And to say, okay, Lord, I trust you. The gospel must go out. You're wanting the good news to be proclaimed. And I will not be offended by the way in which you have chosen to judge, by the way you have chosen to build your kingdom. Now, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Bold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus says, John was a tough man, unshakable, 
not influenced by a life of ease. He was a prophet. And not just a prophet, he says, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, verse 27, and here Jesus quotes from Malachi 3 that I read earlier, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, the beautiful thing that Jesus is announcing is that, you know, John had a privileged position, didn't he? I mean, Abraham, David, Elijah, Elisha, all of these Old Testament figures had wonderful opportunities. But John's, because he had an opportunity to see Jesus and prepare the soil for Jesus, had a position of great privilege. But what Jesus announces is that those who receive the gospel, our position is actually even greater than John's. Now, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, verse 29, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Then Jesus said, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. They sing, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I think Jesus is saying here that these people would never be satisfied, number one. But he's pointing out a couple of beautiful things. The children in Jesus' illustration wanted someone to dance, and they wouldn't dance. And the children in this, inner, in this illustration wanted someone else to weep, but they would not weep. And I think what Jesus is saying about himself and John is he's saying, listen, you wanted John to celebrate what you celebrate, but he wouldn't. And you want me to mourn over what you mourn. You know, these people that are here that I want to minister to, but I will not mourn. In other words, the wise life, Jesus says, he says, wisdom is justified by all her children. The wise life is one which refuses to celebrate the things that make this current age happy. And secondarily, the wise life is one which refuses to mourn the things that make this age sad. And man, if we could just capture that heart of John and the heart of Jesus and apply them in our own lives to have true asceticism and true joy rather than a false religious asceticism and a false sinful joy, then we would of all people be the most blessed because wisdom, it is justified by all her children. Follow your line of life and philosophy all the way to death, through death, and into life after death and see where it gets you. The life with Jesus is a wise life. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.